Dear listener, this is Interfaith-ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. Dear listener, this week I'm sharing a wonderful conversation I recorded back in September with two amazing, inspiring, insightful women, Rosemary Card, founder of Q Noor, a Latter-day Saint temple dress company, and Dilshad Ali, blog editor at Hot Hijab. If you don't know what a temple dress is and what it's used for, have no fear, all will be revealed. That's a little modesty pun for you, dear listener. But I'm bump. Oh boy, see what happens when I'm left alone in the studio without anyone to check on me and my terrible jokes. Yikes. Anyway, in our interview, Rosemary shares what inspired her to name her Mormon brand after the Queen of Jordan, and we explore why there may be some major crossover potential with the Muslim market. Plus, Dilshad talks about how a self-described journalism nerd ended up running a haute couture fashion blog and how her company is helping Muslim women match their outward appearance with their inward confidence. Seriously, this is one of my favorite conversations I've had on the show, dear listener. I learned a lot and I laughed a lot and I'm excited to share it all with you now. So without further ado, let's get into some interfaith-ish. So I'm excited to sit down with fashion entrepreneur, aspiring mogul, oh, <laughs> Rosemary man. Card. Who knows what I'll be. <laughs> and, and fashionista, self-proclaimed, oh, please right, don't call style me a guru. No, 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 <laughs> do not call me a fashionista. It's the last thing anyone would ever call me. My daughter would be like, heck no. She's not a fashionista. <laughs> what? My mom, no. <laughs> it's mom style. Yeah, it is mom style. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to take this opportunity to, to talk a little bit about um, you know where your your respective backgrounds and 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 how it is you know that you Rosemary started your your company and, and what went into that and then and then Dilshad you know telling us about what it's like to to be working for this Muslim style I know. outlet yep. and uh, yep. and and what you've you fashion tips that you've learned there and sort of the, the I actually have learned a lot this year. <laughs> <laughs> My game has changed a bit now. Yeah. All right, all right, cool. So we'll get on into that. So, uh, Rosemary, tell us a little bit about your story and what your um, how it is that you came to to start uh, Q Noor, your fashion line. Yeah, totally. So. Um, I grew up, my mom, when I was like eight years old, wanted to go back to school. And so our family moved to New York City so that she could go to FIT in interior design. And so I grew up skipping elementary school and faking sick so I could go to class with my mom. Um, And then um, when I was 16 to 18, I was an international runway model um, based out of New York City. And so that was kind of, I've always had a background in style and design and fashion um and when i was i don't know 25 26 it must have been i realized that there was a need in the mormon temple dress market i have always wanted to start my own business but i didn't want to start like the eight millionth baby bow company you know um i wanted (laughs) to there's a glut of those in the mormon market it's pretty saturated (laughs) and so i wanted to say like Um, I wanted to solve a problem and at that time no one was making temple dresses that people would actually say like oh if this was red and had short sleeves I would wear this to church on Sunday Um, and when you go to the temple for the first time there's a lot of new things we don't talk about what happens in the temple outside of the temple so it's kind of like I don't know what's about to happen Um, and so there's enough to feel stressed about and to feel worried about and I think it would make it worse if you also had on a dress that made you both physically uncomfortable and just like you felt ugly. Mm. Um, and so I decided, I thought someone needs to make temple dresses that girls actually like and that they're comfortable, not like these scratchy Tupperware fabric things. Um, and so I just felt this little nudge of like, why don't you do it? Um, so I went and I set up an appointment with um, like the woman who's in charge of kind of like the main temple in salt lake to say like am i allowed to make my own temple Mm. dresses do they have to come from the church what are the rules and then i went home that night and i googled how to start a clothing company and i just started from there and i worked on it for about uh, 
nine, 10 months before I launched. Um, and I found a wonderful, um, actually like three generation Jewish family in LA and they manufacture all of my wow. dresses wow. and they're really okay. wonderful. Um, they work with other LDS companies and so they're very familiar really? with like all of the standards that That's we need. That's an interesting collaboration. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so um, they play a huge role in yeah. QNOR yeah. Um, and then our, our name is Arabic um, and so I kind of have this. You're like, working on all levels here. Where did QNOR come from? Um, so when I was in college, I did a study abroad a semester in Jerusalem, um, and I just saw these beautiful, wonderful women named Noor, and I thought like, oh, that's such a beautiful name. Um, Noor meaning light, light in Arabic. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, and I thought that was such a beautiful name, and if I ever have a, the chance to have a daughter, I'd love to name her Noor. Um, and then um, when I started my company, a lot of my competitors have the word white in their name. And so I was like, I don't want to get mixed up in that. And, and I don't want really? why would the, like why white would elegance, be? dressed in white, because all of the dresses are white. Oh, I see. So it's okay. super creative. Yeah, plan, uh, yeah. plan into a little <laughs> so uh, bad, uh, Mormon stereotype there. Companies. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I also just thought like, okay, SEO wise, like, Mm, uh, I don't, yourself. yeah, separate myself, do something that I can easily rank in. And so I was trying to think about like what would be significant to me. Um, and while studying in Jerusalem, I learned about Queen Noor. Um, and I really admire her story and what she's done in Jordan. Um, and so that was also kind of a, a play and influence on it. Um, but when we were in the temple, we learned that we are like essentially queens in training, mm. um, that we are all queens. Um, and so the Q stands for queen. Um, and then obviously Nor stands for light. So it kind of means queen of light, kind of a mm. roundabout way of getting in. I could get the nice. qnor.com really easily. There you go. Fourteen ninety-five. So also very <laughs> important. great. That always helps. Yeah. Can you can you break down for us what is the purpose of a temple dress? Like, what is the role of the temple in the LDS community? Why do you need a special dress to go in there? Yeah. What does it typically look like? I think that's a great question. So when you go to the temple, you make promises with God that you will live your life in a certain way. And um, these are these are only members of the LDS. Church. Only members All, of only the Latter LDS. Only Latter-day Saints are allowed to go in. Yep. Um, and so it is kind of like the highest form of LDS worship is going to the temple. Um, our like normal Sunday church buildings are so plain and so basic. Like I really think of like we've got wait, wait, the so going to the temple is different than going to church. Yes, two so different we, buildings, two, two different, different buildings, meanings, two different purposes, purposes. Yeah. Okay. So you go to church every Sunday. It's a very basic, very plain building. You could swap out pictures of leaders and it could represent any other church other than we don't have crosses. Like it's very mm -hmm. basic. Our temples are very ornate, um, very pricey, beautiful buildings. Um, and so when we go to the temple, you wear a very, everyone's wearing white, pure white, simple, very modest clothing. And the white often signifies like purity and holiness. And then also it's an effort to kind of make sure that like, everyone's on the same playing field. Yeah. Equal footing, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Like, Actually, interestingly, sort of like, like going when you on go for Hajj yeah. on pilgrimage. The men wear the white cloth, and exactly. women don't have to wear white, but they have to cover themselves in a certain manner, and it's to level the playing field. Absolutely. You are sitting there, and you have no idea if you are sitting next to someone who is a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, or if you're sitting next to someone who works at a convenience store, or like, you have no idea. And I think that's important because we're human and that can matter to us sometimes. So everyone's on the same playing field. Everyone's of equal value and importance, no matter what you're wearing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, But it has to be a particular dress. Like, I mean, if it's white, I mean, when you go for Hajj, like the what the men wear, the two-piece white cloth, it's very, like there's specific parameters around it, but women are given more leeway. Mm. But in LDS temple life, when you go, it has to be a particular kind of a dress? Um, there are specific standards like, um, long sleeve, a certain length, no like bedazzled jewel sequence plain stuff. White. Pretty plain, it can have lace and detail. Um, but if I could go to like Ann Taylor and get a white button up shirt and a white skirt, and that would be totally suitable. 
Oh, you can wear. Yeah, it just it's just as long as it's white and not like flashy or in your face. Yeah. You have to cover your hair too, or just the dress? No, there is as you work through the temple like ceremony. There are additional like sacred pieces of clothing that you put on, and women's heads do get covered. Yeah. So are there? To your knowledge, are there there other manufacturers of these types of of dresses, or are you really sort of breaking into new territory? Because I just wonder, like, what's the business model for such a niche market? Oh, it's so niche. It happens. It's so niche. Okay, you're you're a Mormon woman. You're going to the temple. You're of a certain age. You're of a certain age. Of a certain like faithfulness. You have enough uh, disposable income that you want like a little bit of a classier, Mm -hmm. nice dress to go in there. So just what like. Tell, tell us about what is the what's the market like for that? You know? Yeah, so the church has a they call the distribution center, and so they do have article of clothing that they provide it at a really oh, the, the like would provide. really affordable rate. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also rent USA? clothing, uh huh, okay. or not all of it actually, some of it, but not all of it. Sure. Yeah, um, they will also rent clothing at a lot of the temples, not mm. all, but you can go and pay like two twenty five and get whatever you need to wear. Mm. So that's also really accessible for most people. Um, there are a handful of other private companies like myself. Um, as when I started putting these temple dresses on Instagram. People were like, you can't do that. Like, that's so weird. But as I've been doing it over the past four years, um, it's become more normal. And existing, um, like, clothing companies that serve the Mormon market are starting to add temple dresses to their lines. Um, and so I as well, like, I'm adding other products to the company. Oh, wow. um, so we do, like, nightgowns and house dresses and, like, um, clothing that just kind of makes sense for every day mm-hmm. um, because temple dresses are so niche. And, it, and it's fairly, it's modest clothing, mm-hmm. um, but Do you're just- the Muslims can shop there. There you go, yeah, you can. <laughs> would you like to open up your market to a billion people? That would be incredible, <laughs> and I love Muslims, so I would- like, you, you might like- Stars in my eyes, like- <laughs> Yeah, I'm just saying, there's, there's a lot of market out there for you. You might low-key just start marketing because you've already got the name. <laughs> you do have the name. If someone Googled you, they might think they're like going Muslim to a Muslim company. fashion company. Yeah. yeah, just swap out, you know. Although I guess the photos are pretty diverse already. I saw some of the ones. I mean, it's tr- you're, you aren't skimping on the quality of, of the fashion presentation. You're stepping no. really into... We want beautiful models. The photos should be very nicely presented. Like you said, you're you're you've got a, a, a strong Instagram presence. Yeah, and diversity has always been really important to me. When I was a model, I remember sitting at a runway casting, and next to a black model and another black model walked out and she this other one was like more well known, um, and the model next to me said like, oh, I'll never book this show because they've already booked. The black, black model because she's for sure getting booked on this and that just like i that had never occurred to me as a 16 year old who grew up mostly in utah um and so that has always been like though i'm a small company i feel like i absolutely have a responsibility to show that like there are other types of mormons other than like a 105 pound white blonde woman mm-hmm. who drives an escalate mm-hmm. you know what i mean like we all look different, and so I feel uh, it's very important to um, for everyone to be able to see diversity when they, especially when they look at a religious company. Yeah, I want, that's a good point to transition. I want to talk to you, Dilshad, then about about hot hijab mm-hmm. and what is it that that the company does? What is the platform about, and and how is it perhaps also trying to address some of these? ideas sure. of representation. I'm going to backtrack though because you introduced me as a fashionista. You can see it's still in my <laughs> in head. Jest. <laughs> in, in jest. jest. Because actually I um, I came into this role uh, as an editor. And so I, I, I actually am in charge of all their editorial content. They have a blog, they have a presence where they're um, promoting and talking about all things pertaining to Muslim women in the U.S. but also around the world. So that's what I was brought in to do. And it was an interesting transition for me because um, I had not worked for uh, a commerce or a fashion mm. company before. Mm-hmm. I'd always been just on media sites. So I wasn't sure how I would fit in, but it's been very, very uh, rewarding and fulfilling to be there and to be able to be given free latitude to like, what you know, what 
stories need to be elevated? What do we need to be talking about? And I've learned a bit about fashion. Yeah. Because when I was hired, I said, listen, you're going to get a great editor. I'm confident in my abilities as a, as a journalist, as an editor, as a writer, as covering Muslim communities for two decades almost. Mm. However, my forte is not fashion. So I've actually learned a lot this year. And mm. so to your question, Hot Hijab, you know, it's, it's a company that sells hijabs, headscarves. And the whole premise is, is to um, help Muslim women feel confident and beautiful and modest in their, in their dress so that their outwardly appearance um, matches their inward confidence or to have or to elevate their inward confidence to match their outwardly appearance because as much as we can argue that looks don't matter and appearances don't matter it does feed into how we feel mm -hmm. about ourselves at times mm -hmm. and so um, yeah I've learned a lot this year with them. Tell us about the the issue of of looks and so forth within the Muslim community what are the things that people maybe you know uh, uh, don't don't see if we can you know I mean uh, peek behind the veil as it were <laughs> you did not just say that <laughs> <laughs> come on cliche come on um, you know we'll start by saying the main thing that like like Mormonism or, or Christianity or Hinduism or whatever it's not a monolith Islam is not a monolith so there are women who cover there's certainly a lot of women who don't cover mm -hmm. There's women who wear burqas and niqabs, the face veil. There's those who just wear hijab. There's those who are very much into that line, that line of fashionable modest dressing. Mm -hmm. And there are those to whom, you know, they don't want to be about that. They mm -hmm. just want to be about modest dressing, period. Because if you think about it, you know, what is modest dressing? It's, 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 um, it's being modest in your apparel, in your character, and, um, you know, trying to make sure that you are being you're being talked to and you're being thought about and you're being asked questions about what's going on on your inside not based on what are you looking like that being said um you know hot hijab is a fashion company and so they want to help muslim women feel good about themselves right and if that means you know having uh, beautiful, well-constructed headscarves to be able to wear how we want to wear them, then that's what it is, and that's what they want to do. And, you know, I went into this company um, not owning any hijabs from Hot Hijab when mm. I was hired. I made sure that I bought, like, four before I did my interview so that I would start to understand the product a mm -hmm. little better. And um, to not really thinking a lot about that space of wanting to be beautiful in your modest attire and like not giving it that much weight and this whole year coming through it thinking about even in my own life to like when i first started wearing a headscarf which has been like 15 years now mm. about like yeah like really feeling awkward for the first 10 years like i don't know my look I don't think I look good in this. I want to be modest, but I still want to be a frump, you know? Mm -hmm. And like not knowing how to do it. Mm. Just not knowing how and um, appreciating what, what they do, what we do at Hot Hijab to like help women get over that. So I, I wonder if for people who aren't familiar about about that struggle, and I, I mean, honestly, I'm saying that also as a man who, sure. who, who just in general doesn't go through the struggle sure. of really thinking so much about what what I look like sure. every time I step out the door, but but thinking particularly about again that that specific experience of what it means to to cover your head to to wear a scarf. What are the like? What are the mechanics of that? What do, what do you what do you think about when you're talking about you know the 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 line and the and the examples that you you bought before you got in there so you could see how they're constructed and 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 what the different styles yeah. are. I'm just curious what. There's actually a whole the lot that goes into it, and I'm sure mm -hmm. you've learned that in your work as well as to what it takes to build a, you know, a temple dress. There is so much that goes into the construction of a good hijab that I never took for consideration because mm -hmm. before I walked into this company, um, either my hijabs were gifts, you know, and I didn't have a choice in what I got, or I uh, bought them from Target, you know, mm -hmm. or. You just know, as a regular just a, scarf. Just, you know, as a neck scarf, that because mm -hmm. everyone's into wearing scarves these days, you know, and they wear them around their neck and all sorts of, you know, infinity scarves and regular scarves. And I would find patterns I liked at Target or other department stores and purchase them, and they, they'd become my headscarf. And um, when I came to Hot Hijab and I realized the amount of effort that was put in through the, the, the design department to, to the construction of, of these things, like, 
the market research on the size, you know, what sizes should we make them in? What, what do women want? What are the materials? How should that material feel? How should it feel against your face? It shouldn't be scratchy. It should be able to drape like this. You should be able to tuck it into your shirt if you want to. You know, a pin shouldn't snag it. You know, you should, all of that stuff. It kind of blew my mind. I was like, oh, I never thought about it to such a degree, right? And now that I do think about it more in those um, in those terminologies, you know, it 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 does give you confidence because if you figure out then what it is that works for you individually, and then you lean into that, and then that obviously that makes you feel better about how you're dressing and how you step out in the morning. You know. Did you have friends that were very very fashion conscious that that had that or or members no, of your family? No, I didn't. I really didn't because <laughs> this one's coming from the the bookworm. I know scene I am. I am coming the from the, the kind of you know the bookworm scene, for lack of a better term. Yeah, I did. Like, um, I never was really part of a group that was very much into hijab fashion. Mm-hmm. I just wasn't. I mean, I, I'm a journalist. We're we're journalism nerds, and that was my world, that and and my family and my family life and. Um, I, and I am the only woman in my immediate family who wears a headscarf. I mean, my mother-in-law does, oh, really? but no. like she wears it like, you know, second, um, first generation, just kind of wrapping mm-hmm. a dupatta around your head, you know, not like this whole way that we do it now. Uh, my mom doesn't, my daughter doesn't, it was just me. And um, so I, I did not have that around me, really. Mm. Uh, I, I had women who I looked at who I thought they looked really good, and, I said, and I'd always say to myself, I wish I knew how to do that, right? Mm-hmm. But I didn't have enough in me to make the effort to figure out how. Mm-hmm. And then when I started working at Hot Hijab and really got connected to an entire huge community of women who are, for whom that's, this is important, and this does help them in their confidence and in their strength, and really, this you know this will go take the conversation a whole other way but like for us as muslim women to step out visibly covered muslim women it's a big deal these days you know it's always been a big deal in any aspect but it's even more so now and so if you can do that and feel good about yourself and feel confident doing that and 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 a well-constructed well-wrapped hijab helps you feel that way then all the more power to you you know and if it makes you feel better going out then good you know well, I think that's so important because there's actual like solid research that says if a woman is concerned or focused on what she's wearing, she is um, less equipped to do math. Um, mm. She doesn't learn as well. Like there's real science and research behind the idea of like wear something that you feel physically comfortable in, but also confident. Confidence. Simply so you can put it on, forget about it, and focus on things that matter more. Um, because if you feel like you look weird, if you're nervous about that, you're focused on that. Mm-hmm. Like Everything about our culture tells us that what a woman looks like matters most. Mm-hmm. And so if you, like you, it just is consuming. So if you can feel good and be able to step beyond it, it's huge. People say to me like, why are you trying to make the temple fashion show? I'm like, I'm not. I'm trying to. But that would be kind of a cool idea. But like, cool. It would be, <laughs> but like, it would be a very why beautiful are we environment. Thinking about that more, very beautiful environment. Oh my gosh, that would be incredible. Gosh, <laughs> so many thoughts right now. To do the um, runway in the temple. But like, very exclusive. Yeah, if you can put on a temple dress and then forget about it mm-hmm. and focus on like the actual ceremony, like that's a powerful item of clothing. Yeah. So I, I think I'm hearing she's, major She's right on it. If you can wear a hijab or, or whatever you're wearing for your modest dress and like feel confident and feel good and then step into the world and just do your thing, you're not worried about that anymore, mm-hmm. right? And it's not vain. It's no. not trying to be flashy. It's just, it's trying to like live a great life. Yeah, and it's and it, I think you know art and beauty is something that that all of our traditions value. Yeah, value. You know that that is that is a virtue. Beauty is a virtue. Um, the arts are, are are the idea of of creativity and so forth are laudable attributes. You know that are that are attributes of God. Yeah. And and so when we lean into those ideas of how can we innovate, how can we help people feel good about themselves? And, and you're saying like you're saying the, the the motivation is not coming from a vain place or a superficial place, but it is about affirming the value of the person by by presenting a strong, you know, uh, confident exterior and, and I think yeah. that's like a real key point that she made about it doesn't come from a place of vanity because mm. I know there's always all these discussions about 
well, you're supposed to be talking about modesty and this and that, but then you're worried about how it looks and you want to look well in it. And why would you want to look well in something if you want to be modest about it, right? But it's not really, it's not that vanity part of it. It's not that seeking, you know, all that um, feedback, or I, I would hope it would not be. It's, it's really about feeling good about yourself, yeah. mm-hmm. good about your life, about yourself, about how you're represented when you head out or when you head in yeah. to the temple or whatever. And, and that's important. Yeah. And I didn't think about that that much until I came to Hot Hijab. I really I wonder didn't. if you could, I mean, if you could have two women wearing the exact same hijab and one could be wearing it immodestly and one could be wearing it modestly, right? Like in the sense that like, I think I'm a big believer that modesty is more about like the conditions of our heart and how sure. we see ourselves in relations to others rather than what we are wearing. Um, and so I like, there's a scripture in the New Testament, I think somewhere in the Bible, maybe old, that says like God looks on the outward, the world looks on the outward appearance and the man looks, God looks upon the heart. And so I think like you could be completely covered and be completely immodest in your words and in your actions and how you carry yourself. That's a common theme. No, it has to do with character. It's Mm -hmm. it's how you treat people and Mm -hmm. it's how you see yourself. And, And so... Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what are those conversations like around issues of modesty, issues of um, presenting oneself? You know, we were talking earlier about particularly on social media and how people present their lives on social media. So I'm curious within the, the, the LDS community, um, t- tell us a little bit about what those internal conversations are like. Um, yeah, modesty is a really hot topic right now within the LDS um, community. Um, we recently actually just did a podcast on it, an episode where we brought in one of the directors of Beauty Redefined, which is a large national organization that helps women understand um, how media influences them and how to think about their bodies or how to not think about them. Um, and there are specific uh, cultural modesty standards that are taught to young women. You know, don't wear tank tops, wear a one-piece swimming suit, um, don't sh- wear short shorts, don't have short skirts. Um, and in certain church activities, like a youth dance or something, or a girls' camp, the the leaders enforce those rules. Um, and unfortunately, it's really kind of like up to personal discretion. And so some communities or some wards or groups might be having a girls camp where the girls are going camping and the girls are told that you have to bring a t-shirt to wear over your swimsuit. And others are at another neighborhood, they're allowed to wear whatever they mm. want. Um, and so there's a really big- wear the, wear the swimsuit, but they have to put a, a t-shirt, t-shirt on top. over it. Where like next door, the boys, the Mormon boys are running around yeah, in their running. shorts shirtless. Right, you know what right, I mean? Right. Like, hmm. so it's definitely a double standard. Um, and luckily I think things are changing and there's a big motion to say like, if we are teaching that these young girls, that they are daughters of heavenly parents and that they have value beyond what they look like and beyond just simply being a body, then we need to treat them accordingly. And that's obviously the message that they are getting from the media, that the most important thing is to be hot and to be sought after by men and to look a specific way. And so they might think that because they're a teen, she's a child, a teenager, but when you show up at a church event, like no matter what you are wearing, we are going to treat you as a person. Mm. We're not going to treat you as a body. So you might think that your worth is just your short shorts, but not here. Like mm. you are someone of value and a worth, and we are going to love and accept you and treat you accordingly and trust that like with time, as you come to understand your divine nature and your worth, you'll sort out the clothing on your own. And that's kind of where I come from. Like, focus on the meat of it, um, the root of the issue, build that girl's self-worth, her love, um, and then she will decide how she wants to dress and what's the appropriate way for her to dress as she matures Mm -hmm. and grows older. One of the the people that we both have mutual respect for is Jana Reese, who who, uh, likes to mix it up within the Mormon community and and bring, bring to public light some issues within the Mormon community. Um, and one of the pieces that she wrote recently had to do with um, her perspective that, that men are not being raised within the LDS church to, 
to be respecting women. women. Right. Um, so I wonder, in light of what you just said, I wonder just the broader culture that exists within the LDS community and what, what you see as those similar challenges like Jana was writing about. Um, as this, in regards to like just how in terms men of men, because men have a role in this, right? It's not, Absolutely. It, it's, it's not just about women feeling confident or not. It's, it's the huge pressure that men are, are, are putting on them or reinforcing or, or, or skirting the responsibility on. Yeah, so there, there you hear stories about um, like a leaders of a congregation coming together and saying we're going to set these certain standards for how the girls dress when they go to their girls camp in the summer because last year one of the male leaders was there and he felt uncomfortable because the girls were in leggings mm. or because they were in shorts and so what's normally been the thing is like oh so we have to help him feel comfortable and my thing is like Who's this dude that's feeling uncomfortable uh -huh. with 14 year old? He's having sexual uh -huh. thoughts about 14 year old right. girls in leggings because I don't think he should be the one at camp. Right, right. You maybe know? he like, just shouldn't. Maybe show. he she just shouldn't be there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and definitely, when I was young, and I I feel like we're really getting away from this as a whole. But when I was young, I was taught. Um, Dress, don't dress immodestly because you're going to be walking. If you wear a tank top, you're walking pornography. Um, and you are a temptation to the boys. And you don't want to be a temptation to them. And um, you need to support them and help them. And um, and they have this, like, phrase that also I'm trying to, like, personally murder is that, like, modest is the hottest. Like, I'm sorry. Wow. I didn't think modesty was about being hot. Wow. That's, so, there's a lot going on there's there. There's a lot going on. So we, but luckily, I really think that we are moving away and trying to say, like, we believe that men and women are children of God and that they have the power to not only control their thoughts, mm -hmm. but to be respectful of everyone, regardless of how they are dressed. If you are looking at someone who is dressed below what you think should be the standard, um, it would be very immodest of you to judge them mm. and to put yourself above them. Like that is what's immodest. And so we need to treat everyone as equals and be respectful of everyone um, and know that everyone's on their own path. Yeah. Doshad, I wonder if you can speak to some of those uh, questions as well within the, the Muslim community because obviously there's a, there's a stereotype in, in the public media of the Muslim man as being you know, this hyper-aggressive, um, misogynistic person. And are, is, is some of what, I, I guess there are two ways of, of, of trying to address that. Number one, there's sort of the exterior, people looking at the Muslim community. But then also, I'm curious how Hot Hijab uh, addresses some of those issues um, of misogyny and, 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 and um, women's empowerment um, and the role of men in, in those discussions. I, mean, I think that stereotype is quite unfortunate and um, something that's going to be hard, continues to be hard to overcome and, and it stems from just media representation from how headlines are written to the images that are shown when articles are published of the angry Muslim man. I mean, have you met my husband? You guys haven't, but like he's not misogynistic. He's like the most nicest guy ever, you know? He's and a there's a lot bear. of guys out there like him, a uh -huh. lot. A lot of Muslim men out there like him. And so like from, from the perspective of working at Hot Hijab, we don't necessarily, or I should say in, in the coverage that I produce and the, like the series that we work on and the stories that we write and, the, and I have writers who work for me and the stories and articles that we pitch, we don't necessarily, um, talk about misogyny from a, what are the men doing? We want to talk about what the women are doing. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about, um, so we just, for example, this summer we did a whole series on family marriage and children, parenting, all that kind of stuff. And as part of that, we talked about a lot of topics that don't get heard of too much in Muslim spaces, like what is single parenting like? What's, what happens when you get divorced? What's the post-divorce landscape look like mm -hmm. for a Muslim woman? Um, what are blended families looking like these days for Muslim women, you know? And it, within those topics, yeah, these issues and these questions come up about how do you deal with um, misogynistic uh, stereotypes that you might get from your own community. Forget the outside. Let's talk about what's happening inside our own community, what might get perpetuated, you know, what 
um, support uh, systems are in place for women when they're getting divorced, or what support systems are in place for a woman if she's single parenting, you know, and and why are we coming at it, you know, from a spiritual lens of, you know, they, she should have stayed in the marriage or she should have done this. I mean, that's not where we need to be. Mm. So those are the kind of stories we're trying to cover and offer, you know, different perspectives as to into the real authentic lives of women who are leading these and what are the issues they're dealing with and where did the, where were they lacking in support and where did support come from? Mm. Things like that. So um, to your question, I think it's actually something that we are trying to address from a, a woman's perspective from the stories of Muslim women within our own communities before even worrying about what's happening mm. from the outside looking in we want to be from the inside looking out so it seems like it's a platform for women talking with other women yeah mm -hmm. so when you talk about trying to find authentic spaces where people are not saying no this is what Muslim women think we're trying to be a space where these are exact like Muslim women <laughs> talking about what Muslim women think, you right, know? Right. And so if you want to know, come read the stories, uh -huh. right? Awesome. Exactly. Very cool. So listen, so a, a key part of, of what we do on Interfaith-ish is having the guests get to talk to each other, you know, ask questions that you, that you have. And we did a little bit of that already, but I'm wondering if, there, if you guys have any... Yeah, I feel like I was kind of jumping in and doing oh, your job, look, it's sorry. Hard, it, it's hard to keep a good journalist <laughs> back, right? So tell me about this. <laughs> so, so yeah. yeah, but I want you to go with that. So if you guys have, have questions for you as... I'm just fascinated as to how many similarities there are. Oh, there's so many. And that doesn't actually, it, it's not a surprise to me. I don't know if it's a surprise to you. It's never been a surprise to me because I've worked in multi-faith platforms as well, but the amount of similarities in all aspects of religious life, from modest dressing to so many other things, are like so prevalent. And I don't understand why like it, we always come from a lens of what's different and not from a lens of what's so common. Yeah. I mean, what do you think about that? Well, I like to think that like religions didn't make up sexism. No. Right? No. Like, so this, sometimes I am talking to friends and then I like about different sexism or issues that we are facing as women within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I think it's good to step back and say like, is this a church issue or is this just like a being a woman in the world today issue? Yeah, yeah. Um, and is this like Mormon men that are this way or is this just like a problem that men are facing as men, do you, you know? Do you find a difference between trying to tease out what is, what is the religion and what is the culture of the religion? Because okay. that's a big thing for us, like I feel, just in having been covering these communities for so long in the US, it's like a lot of these issues and a lot of the things that we're having trouble with are issues that are being perpetuated by cultural standards that are placed upon religion. And if you strip that back and just kind of looked at religion itself and like the basic laws of what we're trying to teach and the guidelines of this and that, it's, it's not there, right? Right. We, I mean, we talk about that all the time. Constantly. <laughs> like the difference between doctrine and culture. Yeah. And it can get really confusing because we have human beings who are our leaders of the church, but we believe that they were called of God. And so it's tricky to know like, okay, when he said that, was he speaking as a mouthpiece of God or is right. he speaking as an 80-year-old man raised in Utah? You know what I mean? Like, yes, I do know what you it's, mean. <laughs> it's hard to know. It's hard to know. And people will say, well, like, always assume he's speaking as the Word of God. I'm like, okay, but so what about the guy 20 years ago who was then the prophet who said something in complete contradiction to this? Like, it, it is just so complicated. Um, and so, yeah, like we are always trying to like comb that, comb through that and figure out what are, what's real here and what is just tradition. So in LDS Church, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, is that correctly? Yeah. Yes. Um, you have prophets. Yeah. Do you also have like, you know, in Islam, there'll be like imams or sheikhs or muftis, like leaders who have gotten scholarship or education in Islamic studies. And because we don't have prophets, mm -hmm. for us, we believe the prophet was the last prophet, Prophet Muhammad. Mm -hmm. And um, we have religious leaders to whom we look for to help give us guidance on rulings and matters of the heart and spiritual crisis and things like that. And those will change from who you're talking to and where what is their scholarship coming from and what are the influences in their life do you guys have anyone who fulfills those kind of roles for you outside of who who the prophet is 
Yeah, so we have a very like organized structure. So we have a prophet, mm-hmm. um, just who is very similar to like Moses or Noah, um, and then we have twelve apostles, just like there was at the time of Christ. Right. Um, and then from there, there is what they call the Quorum of the Seventy. So those are men who are spread all over the world, and they kind of represent their area. And then as they move down, it just kind of like branches out. Um, and so in a larger area there will be a stake um, which is a grouping of maybe five or six wards which are individual congregations and then there are leaders of each ward and each stake of every level. Um, How do the leaders get chosen? So that's a very interesting thing because all of our clergy or our leadership is just they're normal people so even our bish our prophet he's a heart surgeon or he was he's long I mean, the retired prophet of the, the, prophet the of church, church of Le- let me say this again the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints it. got it he's a heart surgeon he's a heart surgeon yeah well, how did he become the prophet um so he moved up he was initially a bishop so a leader of a neighborhood um and then you just kind of get called and and what we believe is that it's called by inspiration so when um a let's say i don't know what my current bishop does but let's say he's a dentist mm-hmm. um and he serves as bishop for five years um and then when his term is up the leaders just above him will gather together and pray and talk to different men in that neighborhood and say who do we feel like is the right person to lead this neighborhood for the next stint and he could be a publisher he so are there term limits uh yeah Ah, this yeah. is so interesting. There's yeah. terminals. Okay. Yeah, so it's it's a very demanding job, and so it rotates. And I th- it's a cool part, but it's also kind of a tricky part because yeah. then that means um, they there's very little training that goes into these important callings, and these are really important callings because um, they play a large role in the spiritual development of the people in that neighborhood. And so there are people that have really horrific experiences with their bishop because he just was kind of a sucky dude you know and he had and he had really like strong opinions about certain things and so it was hard you'd have to have some sort of religious training as a prerequisite to being we all go under like some kind of religious training like um in high school i did as i was going through high school i at the same time did four years of seminary training um we are really big in like scholarship um and so a someone who's called to a bishop has a pretty good understanding he very likely served in lds missions so that means he went in two years all he did was missionary missionary work work. um so they very they're very much educated and understanding um but as far as being someone who a couple will come to and say like we're struggling in our marriage we need help and if you're just going to like the local dentist in your neighborhood that's tough. You know what I mean? Like he doesn't have, he's not a therapist. He doesn't have that training. And so um, we are very, are very involved people. And so I think you can um, trust that there's been some training, but there's no formal training as far as like he's gone to the school and received this diploma and is now able to lead a congregation. Well, that, that makes a very interesting point because that's a similar um I would say issue amongst American or Muslim leadership in the sense that they're trained, they, you know, to have that title of an imam or a mufti or a sheikh or whatever, it connotates that you've had some sort of training, Mm -hmm. right? That you've graduated from some institute or maybe you went to seminary school here in the U.S., Mm -hmm. you know, and got a chaplaincy or something, right? But at the same time, they're not necessarily trained to be counselors or to how to counsel someone who has dealt with domestic violence or a broken marriage or a spirit, you know, a spiritual crisis, yeah. But like other aspects of like living, yeah. all these aspects of living a messy, authentic life. That people go to the religion for. Exactly. And you're not necessarily trained for that. Yeah. Which is very like iffy and problematic if you don't, uh, if that person doesn't know how to, the right headspace about how to talk to you about that. Yeah. And so common problem. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's definitely a problem. And the question is, okay, well, like, how do we solve it? And I just think like, I don't know. We, I guess you have to put faith in that um, 
that God is at the head of this church and um, he only has imperfect people to work with, but he is perfect and through his power and authority, whatever he needs to work out can work out. And I completely believe that. But I also think like on the everyday level, we have room to improve as far as addressing very important things like abuse and yeah. Uh, there's always work to be done and there's like for example there's there was an imam training program that was instituted a couple years ago um to 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 bring imams in and to train them on these very real issues of life that you're going to come across you know and i think we need a lot more of that Mm -hmm. and things like that to speak to all these issues and you know taking it back to women things that women want to talk about that they want to talk to a woman about you know all those things are so important one of the things that you said was it's Men. It's men, it's men appointing men. So, mm-hmm. so there's half yeah. the population is left out of these yeah. leadership positions. Yes. Right? So that I'm sure not, affects that's the not dynamic. Of in, in so many different faith communities, mm-hmm. and yeah. you know, Muslim, Islam, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, um, Judaism, Hindu. I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be good. <laughs> She's proper about the, how I say the, it. The, the journalism <laughs> story. I guide. am following my journalism yeah. standards, and like I think it's, it's a it's a common problem or a common struggle mm. uh, in all our, our faith traditions, and we have uh, trained female scholars for sure in Islam in in the U.S. and but to include them in these conversations when they're happening or on panels when pe- like too many times there's a panel put together to discuss something pertaining to women and there's not one <laughs> darn woman on that panel like what the heck you know yeah. mm. there are trained women there are women who have done the scholarly work who have you know worked in the community like bring them on you yeah. know one of our big things is that that what comes from the church or from the culture is that like, well, men and, men and women are different, so they have different roles. And I feel like, yeah, we are absolutely different. And so for sure, women have different perspectives. They bring different things to the table. And like, why, why, why wouldn't would you, you want, want that? that? Like, why would you not want to deepen that pool of knowledge? Like exactly. when you completely wipe out half of this like brain power, then like, that's a pretty shallow pool. Like, why not bring in someone who can see it from a different perspective? Yeah. Why not value that? I just think that we're tying a hand. Yeah, the question back. isn't that we're different. The question is, why wouldn't you want those differences in the room together? Yes. You yes, know, yes, why yes, wouldn't yes. you? Yeah. I would want the differences in the room together. Yeah. Yikes. <laughs> is that a good place to end? <laughs> a, lot, a lot of good work to do. <laughs> Oh man! All right, so I do I do have a question um, for you here though, um, and it's and it's very it's a very self-serving serving question, but I'm 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 curious. I'm always curious when when I, you know, sit down with fierce ladies who have have lots of experience in in this arena, um, especially ones that that have have background in in, in fashion and have thoughtful opinions about these. Um, so I'm I'm the father of a daughter, mm-hmm. and uh, she's eight. And um, when she was when she was born, I swore to my wife, I was like, I, I just I want to toss out anything that's pink that we're given for this kid. I don't want anything to have. And of course, people just threw all the pink outfits and all the little skirts and the and the thing. And she totally loved it. I don't know if it's like a nurture thing or nature or whatever the case is, but she was totally into it. So, you know, I am one of these people that gets anxious about what my daughter's wearing, even at, even at eight, is the, is the skirt too short, you know, how is she sitting, how is she, you know, all that, you know, like, so, I'm asking for advice, <laughs> I'm just curious what, what your take is, like, how, do, you know, you, you've obviously, you, you grew up, um, you know, doing, doing modeling from a very young age, um, which, which I imagine exposed you to a lot of beautiful opportunities, but probably a lot of, you know, difficult situations mm-hmm. as well. You're a mom, you've got kids, so you've been through the fire, oh, yeah. you know? So I'm just curious, like how, how what, what would you advise for, you know, both for, for young girls and frankly, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm soliciting free advice for me as a dad, mm-hmm. like to, to encourage this beautiful young girl that's, that uh, I'm, I'm with my wife, obviously, trying to, to bring up right in the world. Yeah. Oh man, so many thoughts. Um, probably something that I try to do with myself is to remind myself that like 
my body was a tool gifted to me by God to enable me to come to this earth and to have experiences and to learn things. Um, and I am blessed to have legs that can take me to point A to point B. And I have arms and like all of my body parts serve a purpose and they were designed by God. Um, and my, you know, I'm a model. I've got long, thin legs. They are not sexual objects. Mm. And so um, I think it's easy for us to project onto children that like they are being um, sexy or so, or they, they, they're dressing inappropriately. Right. And I just think it's like, it's so important that we, tr that we don't sexualize them. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like um, a young girl in tight leggings isn't, she's just wearing leggings, you know what I mean? And like her legs are just her legs. They are not a temptation to someone. Um, and as far as the like, she really likes the pink stuff. I just think the great thing about it is that we can just let her like the pink yeah. stuff. You know what I mean? And thankfully, she, her palette is, has diversified. That she's yeah. gotten older. I do. I will say I read this very cute thing on Facebook, and it's very cliche Facebook thing that you would read. Um, but it was a dad writing about how his daughter loved princess things and that made him anxious. Mm. And so he decided that he was going to sit down with her and be like, okay, as a princess, how are you going to lead your people? And how right. are you like, let's talk about this. Like, how are you going to lead your government? And like, they used it as a very empowering thing. I've talked to my daughter about that. I that's love actually that, that same sort of thing. I think it's so cool that we can totally take yeah. it and like it was spin a cool it. Conversation to have. Yeah. And, um, say like yeah you are you are a queen in training mm -hmm. and that means mm -hmm. that you have influence and power and authority and, and responsibility responsibility to be mm -hmm. good and kind and be honest and that we can you know we can raise little leaders who love pink like that's okay mm -hmm. yeah just show what do you think oh my daughter's 16 she's put me through the ringer <laughs> <laughs> and i have sons also and do you only have one just one okay so I think my perspective is a little bit about what it, what it is to raise daughters and sons mm. together because um, a lot of times it feels like things in my faith are more geared towards what a girl should or shouldn't do rather than what a boy is should or shouldn't do. And I know that's something that I felt growing up. I had two brothers and I was the only girl and my daughter is the only girl with two brothers as well. And I remember when I started having children, telling my husband, I said, we're not going to do this thing where she's not allowed to do this, but he is. I mean, we're going to try within reason to be as fair as possible. We're also going to take into account what are their personalities like as they're growing up, because she might be a, an extremely responsible young person, and he might be a pretty uh, irresponsible guy who's really, you know, can get tempted easily, which would mean I might want to have more eyes on him than I might need to have on her. It could be the other way. We have to look at that. And so for me, it's been a lot of like, what kind of conversations do I want to have with both of them? How do I want to talk about things? Not from a perspective of you're not allowed, but you know, here's how we want, we want you to be careful. Mm -hmm. And also um, to the extent of, I mean, I guess around modesty, like I, I have raised her to dress modestly, but I have not told her that she needs to wear a headscarf because that's a big decision. And I feel like if you're going to take that decision, then you should consider it to be a long-term decision. I would hope it would be for the course of your lifetime, but it could change. Women change, people change their minds all the time, right? But... Um, yeah, that, that you, you used a term earlier before we were recording. <laughs> when women D-job. D-job. <laughs> yeah, that, that's an old term, actually. You probably just haven't heard it in your circles. I haven't. That, I haven't. that term is very much common in our circles. What is that discussion like in, in the community? Uh, that's like, a whole other podcast, though. <laughs> That's but I mean, is it, is it, does it feel, do, do people go, <gasps> yeah, it, yeah, people go, <gasps> people take it in stride, people get, they feel personally upset by it, people, mm. you know, roll with it, people are people, they feel a lot of different ways mm. about it, and that is a whole other discussion to have at some point, but um, I, I raised her from the beginning to to be modest in her dress, you know, um, I did not like put her in sleeveless a lot or, you know, I eased out of short skirts pretty quickly because I wanted her to feel used to what she was wearing. 
But I also try to make sure that I had those discussions with my son as well, in the sense of you, you were talking about how our, our bodies are a gift from God and, and we're, we're, we're provided with these beautiful bodies that allow us to do these wonderful things. And sometimes there's limitations. And I also have a son who's disabled, you know, and he was, he was gifted his body. And I try to teach them that your bodies were gifted to you, but your bodies also belong to God. Mm. And so you need to respect that. You need to respect that what has been given to you and what you do with it and how you present yourself and what you put forth into this world. So, um, and to your question, like, yeah, like she also did the whole princess thing and the pink thing. And I remember taking her to a Disney show on ice with a friend of mine and regretting it immediately because it launched this two year princess obsession. And I was like, oh my God, what have I done? What have I done? But these are cycles of life, you yeah. know? She cycled through it into something else. And like the way her fashion sense is now, I'm like, girl, I don't know how to shop for you. I, like, I, I used to think you like this, but now you like this. So we're going to have to shop together mm -hmm. anytime we go out because I want you to wear what I buy for you, mm -hmm. right? We have these active discussions when we shop, and it's a whole thing. It's not just about what modesty looks like, but it's also about her feeling um, included and not otherized because we've also had discussions where she gets like mad at me. She goes, I just want to look like all the other girls. Mm -hmm. And what she means are the majority white girls in her school. Mm. And I'm trying to teach her, honey, you're never going to be a white girl, mm. right? And so um, you can wear what you want to make you feel comfortable, but I don't ever want you to feel ashamed of who you are and where you're coming from and what those differences might be. Because like we said earlier, we want all the differences in the room, mm -hmm. you know? So mm -hmm. yeah. don't worry too much about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think Bernie Brown's difference between fitting in and being accepted. Yes. So I love that. Yeah. like. Fitting in is being accepted because you're like everyone else. Um, but then what's what's her, like the other word, like true acceptance um, is being accepted because you are yourself. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what we really should, should be for. accepted to, for who you are authentically you. Yeah. Unapologetically you. That's the, that's the big phrase these days. Yeah. Unapologetically Muslim. Yeah. Unapologetically Mormon. Unapologetically fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. Whoever you want to be. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's that. Way to shut it down, Dilshad. There you go. Oh, <laughs> this is great. This is yeah. so awesome. I'm lucky to have you. Yeah, I hope so, man. Let me tell her that. <laughs> you are Dilshad's daughter. You yeah, we're no, we, so we... grateful for your mother. Oh, yeah, yeah. She's going to like roll her eyes so hard at you. <laughs> no 16-year-old is grateful for their oh mother. <laughs> when they're 26, they become more grateful, you know? You're just waiting. You're I'm just in that phase of life fingers. right now where I'm like, I hope what I'm saying is getting through to you and fingers crossed. <laughs> that that um that thing about the 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 um was it the phases is real. I was bucking against that real hard. I was like, my kid is not gonna listen to this bubblegum, you know, pop music. You I can can't take all, all that sort want. of thing. So you I was playing I was like playing want. I was playing bikini kill for sure this kid, were. all the riot girl and stuff. I'm playing like nanny's grunge alternative rock, but my daughter still loves Taylor Swift. You no. know? Well that's it. Okay, Taylor Swift is a goddess. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, she's gonna love you. <laughs> I will not have her name whack into my breath. Just kidding. I, I took I my daughter Taylor. to Taylor Swift concert on her 15th birthday in Pittsburgh. I drove six hours to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, took her. Probably was the only oh hijab-wearing woman in okay. that room. She better be but very grateful she loved it. And I yeah. love seeing her be so joyful. Yeah. You know, she loved it. And, and I was like, dude, why? And then I was like, you know what? There could be a lot worse role models out there. She's a pretty good person to have as a... So I'm fine with it. Yeah. Yeah, you're gonna I had like those who songs like. stuck in my head all week long. <laughs> They're good thoughts. All They're week. Good thoughts. Oh, some of them are good. Some of them I'd rather just have something else. It's not my cup of tea, but it's her cup of tea, so that's fine. That's fine. Oh, <laughs> this is great. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. This is a lot of fun. Thanks for Dear listener, that's a wrap on this week's Interfaith-ish. I want to again thank my guests Rosemary Card and Dilshad Ali. You can learn about Rosemary's company, QNOOR, at qnoor.com or qnoor underscore temple dress on Instagram. And you can read Dilshad's writing for Hot Hijab at h-a-u-t-e-h-i-j-a-b.com. 
As always, I want to give a shout out to my fellow interfaith astronauts, Miranda Hovmeyer and Sue Katz Miller, and our musical maestro, Jeff Philosopher, for our show's music. And of course, thank you, dear listener, for spending your hour with us. You can find our entire back catalog of interfaith-ish episodes wherever you find and enjoy podcasts. You can follow us on social media at interfaith-ish, or leave us a voicemail on our special listener line, 202-599-2953, and keep writing us about the interfaith-ish you wish to dish at interfaith-ish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. Interfaith-ish will be back in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at TacomaRadio.org. Are there like Mormon influencer meetups and stuff like that where you guys like get together? And well, there actually is, there's this event um, that's very underground, it's called Women of Light. Ooh. And it's all, it's all the women who do have really large followings and mm-hmm. they come together and they talk about how to, how to talk about important gospel principles, how to do missionary work without being like, read the Book of Mormon, you know what I mean? Um, and and also get a million followers in the process. So that's my personal account. That's my podcast. Oh, you have so many. Yeah, I only have too many Instagram accounts. Um, but I, I got invited to that once. But I don't get invited to that anymore because I, they like had a talk with me and they're like, you shouldn't talk about these things. And I was like, uh, I'm going to talk about what I want to talk about. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? So I, I don't get invited to that secret convention anymore. But you know what? I was talking to a friend this week about it. I believe that my voice is important and I don't want to water it down. I don't want to try to make it just like what everyone else is saying. And so I know I'm different than what lots of Mormons think a Mormon influencer should be, but Mm. I just think like, I'm not for everyone and that's okay, but there's a lot of people who have been really ignored. Um, and so I want to, I want to speak to them because they matter too. Um, even though they might not look or act or speak like a cookie cutter Mormon, like they are Mormons and they matter. And so I want to speak to them and help them feel seen and heard. So anyway, you can be in the, in the cool subset of bad girl Mormon influences. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a regular Mormon. I'm a cool Mormon. Like, gosh, so bad. So bad. Oh, man. Uh, Yeah.